This is the Skate Podcast, talking Bruins hockey with WEI Bruins writers Scott McLaughlin, Bridget Prue, and Brian DeFelice. Lace them up for some bees talk. It's Odyssey's The Skate Pod on WEI. Woo! Welcome into episode 250 of the Skate Podcast. I'm Brian DeFelice, joined by Bridget Prue and Scott McLaughlin. Bridget and Scott, there's a bit of a lull in the Bruins schedule midweek, so we are doing our um, one of our new mailbag episodes where listeners have a chance to give us any questions that they want regarding the Bruins. Um, and there's a lot of them this week to get to, so we're going to do just that. But first and foremost, Bridget and Scott, how are you guys today? I'm good. Just got back from a Bruins optional practice as we sit here and record. Um, Got to say, not a ton of news came out of that, but which makes makes it even better that we're doing a mailbag, uh, you know, fill some time. Um, who yeah, optionally was, who optionally practiced? Uh, actually, mo- most of the team was was on the ice, and they were all in the building because they still had a team video session. Um, so it wasn't no one had like a complete day off. Well, that makes sense, especially since they've been saying they haven't gotten a lot of practice. But um, yeah, and I'm I'm good, guys. I am doing great. Tired. <laughs> tired um, for me i feel like a college kid i'm like ready for winter break because then i get <laughs> i have a few weeks off from doing broadcast so <laughs> i'm ready tired. for winter break guys i'm my final exams are almost over and <laughs> i can maybe sleep you're tired but you're ready to answer some fan questions right yes. okay yes. so let us get right into it first question is an email from tom what do you think of the noah hannafin rumors the Bruins were interested in him before. He would be a great fit. Could they get him? Uh, in addition to Tom's question, we're also going to skip ahead to a question we got on Twitter from what we think is Scott's alias. Just kidding, it's not. But uh, Bridget's favorite account, which is Don's Weenie. And his question is, at this point in the season, how much of an upgrade, if any, is someone like Elias Lindholm over Zaka and Coyle? The main benefit would likely be the ability to move Zaka slash coil to wing, but they could get a cheap, uh, they can get a winger for cheaper than Lindholm is adding center worth it. So basically Lindholm, Hannafin, Flames, Bruins, what do you guys think? First of all, no, I need to respond first here because I was busy trying to look up something about Noah Hannafin when I hear Brian say Don's weenie is Bridget's favorite Twitter account. And I did not have a chance to respond because my mic was off because I was Google searching. So I mean, you, it, me, it, it makes not. you laugh all the time. You know what I mean? You know what I meant? Come on now. <laughs> we keep it, it does make me laugh. We keep it yeah. family friendly on the pod. It does. Bridget, it, Bridget it, you, you told us that right before we went live. You said that was your Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, We'll we'll go there, and and you know what, Scott, you can take over from here. <laughs> yeah, so obviously, it, we've talked about this going back to the off season, saying like the Flames are going to be probably the most interesting team to watch when it comes to the trade market because they have so many pending free agents and really haven't been able to lock any of them up. And we've already seen them move Nikita Zadorov, got traded to Vancouver. I know, you know, that was a name that some Bruins fans uh, were interested in because he is a very physical defender. Um, But yeah, Noah Hannafin is still there, still not signed to an extension. Elias Lindholm, still not signed to an extension. Uh, Wasn't mentioned in these questions, but Chris Tanev is another one who seems like he's almost certainly going to be traded. Um, You know, another 
solid defenseman. So I guess I'll start with the Lindholm one, which is, you know, how much of an upgrade would he really be? And I think the interesting thing here is to me, in a, in a way, this is almost about how much you trust what you're seeing with the Bruins right now. Because if you trust Pavel Zach and Charlie Coyle to continue playing the way that they've played and to continue to produce like top six centers, and if you trust Matt Potra to be a third line center all season and not have some sort of, you know, real drop off at some point, then you probably don't need an Elias Lindholm. Like, sure, if like if a surefire number one center hit the market, you probably have to ask around. But, you know, Elias Lindholm to me is a really good player who kind of does everything. But it's not like he's a superstar, right? Like, his one year topping 80 points was the year that his line mates were Johnny Gaudreau and Matthew Kachuk. Um, and they all kind of went off as a line. Otherwise, he's like consistently a really solid 60 to 70 point guy, which is really good, um, but is also like a pace that Sock and Coyler are on right now. So, um, you know, I was looking into five on five production and Zaka, since he got to Boston, has been higher than than Elias Lindholm. Um, Lindholm previously has generally been higher than Charlie Coyle in five-on-five production, but this year Coyle's higher. Um, Lindholm has dipped a little bit there. So, yeah, like at this exact moment with the way all of them are playing, I don't think Elias Lindholm would be uh, a huge upgrade. And for that reason, I don't think he'd be worth the price that it's going to cost to get him. But if two months from now he's still available and Potra's dropped off and Coyle's come back towards, you know, sort of his like career norms and isn't having a career year, maybe you revisit it. But I guess at this moment, I wouldn't be in a rush to, to go give up, you know, multiple high end assets for Elias Lindholm. And since I just talked for a while, I'll let, I guess, you know, you guys respond on Lindholm first and then we can get into Hannafin. Yeah, because two completely separate uh, pieces. But um, yeah, so I think that, like you mentioned, Scott, the the centers think like, I guess it was more of a question in the offseason, like I, uh, especially before anyone had any idea who Matt Potter was, um, maybe needing to add a center at this point. But as of right now, it doesn't look like they need to, like you mentioned. I still don't think Patra, I mean, I think Patra is completely inadequate third line center for the Bruins. Um, we had a, a bunch of questions about him, so we will get into him uh, for sure. Big chunk of the episode, actually, because I feel like 70% of the questions, maybe more, were Patra related. Um, and he ties into this as well, but I just, like you mentioned, Scott, I think that the asking price is probably too high and the cap situation is what the cap situation is and um, doesn't allow you to have much flexibility. I know Don's weenie on Twitter mentioned maybe uh, adding Lynn home or another center so that you might be able to move Zaka or Coyle back to wing. Um, it would, I mean, I guess by adding a center, you're to create more winger depth. Like, I don't know if that's really what you want to do or you just want to add 
a winger um, rather than be like, okay, we're going to have this center and Zaka is now our winger again. Cause I think the long-term plan with Zaka is that he's going to stick and settle as a center. So like not keep bouncing him back and forth and back and forth um, probably would be ideal. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you guys. I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think adding Lindholm one for one is a major upgrade over Coyle and or Zaka as individuals, but if you're trading for Lindholm, I would imagine Zaka and Coyle aren't going the other way. So it's just a matter of adding strength and numbers up the middle um, and a little bit of versatility because, and again, Bridget kind of mentioned, but like we'll get to Patra, but it's just, he, he's not a sure thing this year as a, um, I, I, it just remains to be seen. Like I've liked what I've seen so far, but, it's 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 tough to sit here and say right now in December like yeah I feel totally comfortable with Zaka Coyle and and Patra as your top three centers in a in a deep playoff run it's 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 a lot to ask of all of them you're talking about three guys that are being asked to play in a role that they haven't had to play so far Patra being in all a, four centers actually Beecher too Beecher too exactly so I I always think that centers you can never have too much strength up the middle. Um, the ask, I don't know what the ask would be. Um, I, don't, I don't think, I mean, whatever. I, I think maybe, obviously, maybe, like, what, what, what would Lindholm go for? What would they want for him? Like a, a first-round pick, a Lysel, or, like, I don't even, like, because nobody on the Bruins roster that the Bruins would be willing to give up, obviously, would go the other way. Um, and then besides that, it's kind of a bunch of, like, journeymen slash, like, bargain bargain pieces on the Bruins roster currently, so. Well, yeah, and I mean, to Bridget's point about the cap, though, like someone from the current roster would have to be going out, whether it's to Calgary or in a separate trade or a third team involved or something. Like, obviously, they, they have very minimal cap space. So for either, you know, I mean, Elias Lindholm's at $4.85 million for this year. Noah Hannafin's $4.95. Uh, Chris Tanev's $4.5 million. So, like, any of those guys, like someone – has to be going out salary wise. So um, yeah, you know, for me talking about these potential, you know, flames who could potentially be traded. Like I see Tanev as kind of a little bit of a duplication of Brandon Carlo, like solid right shot defenseman, really good defensively, minimal offense, not overly physical. I, I, you know, I don't think that really makes a ton of sense for the Bruins. Noah Hannafin to me is the one who interests me the most because like he's, he's sort of been a little bit of a white whale for the Bruins. It feels like they're, they've been linked to him a bunch going all the way back to the draft when the Bruins, you know, made those trades that landed them three first round picks, all the rooms at the time were that they wanted to trade up and their target was Noah Hannafin. And obviously that didn't, happened they kept the three picks and we know how that went um but you know Hannafin's still still 26 he's in his prime still has several of his prime years left um at size at six foot three great skater really good defensively contributes offensively most importantly maybe stays healthy I was looking at this um his career like games played by year is basically always like 78 80 81 um 
the two COVID short seasons, like he played all 70 in 2020 when that year got cut off. Uh, he's played all 24 so far this season. You know, when we're talking about the Bruins defense and like looking for potential upgrades, you kind of always come back to, uh, you know, Matt Grizzlick struggles to get through the full season and get through the playoffs healthy. Um, Hannafin does that. And, you know, it really has the all around game that if you put him in a top four with McAvoy, Lindholm, Carlo, like you have the best top four in the NHL, you know, like that in some ways kind of different style player, but like kind of duplicates what you tried to do with Dmitry Orlov last year. Obviously the sticking point here is what does that mean for Mason Lorai? Like, is he involved in the trade? Because you're gonna have to give up a lot to get Noah Hannafin does what acquiring Hannafin and presumably trying to sign him to an extension would that, you know, does that block Lori? Like, what does that mean there? So that's the bigger takeaway, but like of the potential flames just on the surface and just how he could fit right now in the Bruins. I think I like the idea of Hannafin the best. I couldn't agree more. I, I would move, I mean, I would move Laura in a heartbeat from Noah Hannafin. I mean, it's again, if 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 Mason Laura were eighteen, that'd be one thing. He's turning twenty three, right, in January, Scott? Yeah. And Hannafin's twenty six, and you're talking about a guy who's a bona fide like number one defenseman in the NHL, um, and you're talking about a guy that maybe has top four potential. <laughs> Honestly, I don't even know why Calgary would do it if not maybe just to try to optimize a, an asset that might be out of town at some point for nothing. I don't yeah. know. Well, well who he's might be out of town ending. after this season, he's, he's right. a pending free agent and so, supposedly they were close on an extension earlier this season. And then basically the, the reports are like Hannafin walked away from the table and was like, now I want to see how things play out a little longer. Yeah. Yeah. It, his contract, he's a, he's a free agent at the end of this season. It's like a four, four and a half, or I think it's like a four and a half or a Four and three quarters. Yeah. Almost $5 million contract that Hannafin has right now with a, and his only like trade restriction is he has an eight team, no, like an eight team, no trade list, which I doubt Boston would be on. Like, well, I don't want to Especially there. not since he's a, he's a local guy. I'm sure. No. <laughs> he would love to be a Bruin. Yeah, I think so. And uh, who wouldn't want to be, um, you know, playing next to Charlie McAvoy or like, you know, I'm pretty sure that sounds like a sweet deal to him, especially if the Bruins are in, in a position, you know, at the top of the conference or at the top of the division again. Um, so I don't think that would be an issue um, in terms of acquiring him. Like you mentioned, I I could see them taking Lari as a as a, you know, a really big piece in that trade. Because, like you mentioned, like you're you're gonna lose Hannafin anyway, probably if you're if you're in a place when negotiations are have gone south and you don't think he's gonna come back, or at least you know like there's a pretty good chance he's not. You're getting something that you know you're gonna be able to hold on to because he's still under his rookie contract. Um, and Lorai is obviously the Bruins' top defensive prospect, maybe their top prospect overall. I know we keep saying Lorai is, I, I mean, um, Lysel is, but Lorai. Uh, might may have passed him. I think that he's. I, I think so. I yeah, say. I do too. So does does Grizzly go in the other way? Like, also make that deal worth it because it's it's a roster player, and you're talking about somebody on the left side and player for player. 
I don't care how much of a Matt Grizzlick fan you are. Noah Hannafin is a clear upgrade over Matt Grizzlick. I'm sorry, but he is. So, okay, yeah. what? In, in addition to, okay, so so the Bruins are winning the trade there, right? You 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 give away Grizzlick, you get Hannafin, but then they also get your top prospect in Lori, and they aren't losing their top defenseman for nothing in free agency. I mean, I do that deal in a heartbeat. I know we pounded the whole, um, like Scott, and I know you've said in the past, like you don't want to give up depth on this blue line because you need depth in the blue line. And in this situation, you're giving away two left shot defensemen. Now one's your top prospect and one's a viable, you know, borderline top four defenseman, but probably a third pair deep man on a, on a deep team. Um, do you guys do that trade? If that's the trade? I think I would. Me too. Yeah, I do. I do too. But I think that maybe the first approach by Sweeney would be to try to, not like lose two defensemen, maybe, you know, keep Grizzlick around and maybe try to move a winger or, but I just don't really know who else they would be interested in. Um, But yeah, because, because of the depth, like we mentioned, Orlov coming in added depth. Um, If you're sending two defensemen out and getting one in, obviously your Hannafin's a big upgrade, but at that time of year, it, it's still you still have value that you know you might be able to say Grizzly got hurt or you know what I mean you have Lorai there or say Forber got hurt like you can bring Lorai up now he's gone now he's not an option anymore just something to consider I guess yeah I mean basically you'd be left like for left side options it would be it, Ian Mitchell can has played a little bit on the left like that could be an option and then if you look down in Providence like it's Mike Callahan is having a really strong season down there, uh, but has not played in the NHL yet. Jacob Zaboral obviously is still there. Zaboral's time Wother- to shine. Parker Weatherspoon we saw, you know, for a couple of games. Like, yeah, it, it obviously there's no one really in that group where you're like, oh, I'd be totally comfortable. There's no one with the upside of a Lori that, you know, you're looking at and you're like, boy, he could be, you know, this guy could really help us later in the season. Um, they're all kind of just plug-ins. But you got to give up something to get something. So um, push comes to shove, like, yeah, I'd be, I'd be willing to do that. And a big sticking point for me, too, is, and I said this earlier, but, like, if Lori were an 18-, 19-year-old player, that's one thing. But he's already, he's already in his, you know, early to mid-20s by, by the time next season rolls around. It's like, it's not, I mean, so that's, that's the biggest thing when considering, I don't want to just give away Lori, but you're talking about Hannafin, who's three years older than Lori. And he's been doing it yeah. in the NHL at this level for, you know, seven, eight years now. And, and uh, like, I also think he, he'd be exactly the kind of player that I imagine would be very appealing to Calgary because one, here they are trading away defensemen. Like they're going to have to replace them somehow. And two, I don't think they want to go into a full rebuild. Yeah, Craig Conroy has said that multiple times. So getting, you know, a top prospect who's close to NHL ready, I think in some ways like that's, probably more appealing to them than an 18 year old who's three years away. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas city, go Kevin or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. 
All right. So let's move on to the next question. And this is an email from Brian who said, would there be any benefit to letting Matt Potra play for Canada in world juniors? I don't really think so. Um, you know, he, he's helping you win NHL games right now. And he's been a fixture in your lineup. Um, I don't know what he could learn by going to play world juniors that he isn't learning at the NHL level. So um, that's a tough one. I know that debate comes up, you know, every year it seems like there's a couple players who are kind of in this situation and, you know, world juniors is a great tournament and I'm sure, you know, six months ago is probably on Potter's radar is something he really wanted to play in. But when you make the NHL and you stick on the NHL roster and you're playing every night that, I think most guys would tell you, you know, that's in the end more valuable than going to play a world junior tournament. I think that a very simple answer is that who are you going to plug in if he leaves? Like who well, is Morgan, the Morgan, Morgan Geeky who, slides to center. Yeah. But like, is that what I'm trying to say is it, does that give you a better chance of winning? Like does how, how does that help you? Like I, there's, I don't see the, the well, value I, in sending him like, I think the question more is kind of Bridget. Do you think there's a benefit for Patra to go down to, to the tournament? Oh no. The, the the only time I would say, like the only situation where I could say maybe it might be beneficial is if he was like really struggling to put up points. Like if we get closer to that time and he's gone ten games without a point, mm. like there's something to the idea of hey, go light up World Juniors remember what it feels like to score and put up a bunch of points and he comes boost. back with more confidence type thing. But even, you know, even if like he, if he's keeping up, you know, around a half of a point a game type pace, like I don't think that's really in play. See, even, even that could be a gamble too. Cause what if he goes down and doesn't put up those points and then he's really like battling. Like Lysel last year. Exactly. Second time around goes scoreless in seven games. Like that, that was not good. I think, so the only benefit I could see is exactly what Scott just alluded to, which would be a potential confidence boost for him to put up some points. Um, but personally, I don't like the Bruins making themselves vulnerable to clearly a player who is hoping to be a, a, a top nine fixture for them getting hurt. Yes, he can get hurt in a Bruins game, but I'd if he's going to take a shot off the ankle, I'd rather it be because he's playing for the Bruins and not um, Canadian international uh, team. So. I would yeah. say not really, not really. And I think that if if you are looking at that point in the season for a, a like desperate confident confidence boost, then there might be a bigger problem. Like then then maybe we're actually talking about uh getting back in on the Lindholm trade talks and like we circle back around to our first question about adding a center. But mm -hmm. um yeah, I, I just don't see it. I don't see it happening. I I don't I know it's the question was does it benefit him, but I just don't see like a world where he like it makes sense for either side like either him or the team uh bridget potential detour to a fashion segment while we are in the mailbag so i'm going to go ahead and read off jeff's question that was emailed to us and this is jeff's question by no means am i minimizing the situation with lucic which is unconscionable however about a year ago, I finally found my Holy Grail jersey, an authentic 2010 Winter Classic in my size, which happened to be a number 17 with a Lucic nameplate. 
I think I know the answer, but is there any way to wear it now or do I just have to eat the money? Is this like having a Kurt Schilling jersey at this point? Um, be an interesting fashion segment to discuss just how bad does a player have to transgress before you can no longer wear their jersey in public? Does the transgression have to be personal or can it be professional as well? First off, I, I love this question or questions like this that are just kind of out of the blue. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, un unfortunately, I don't think you can really wear that in a public setting right now. I will say that when you go to Bruins games at the Garden, you'll still you're still seeing a couple Milan Lucci yep. jerseys. I right saw now. some. Yep, I did. I saw actually a lot. Yeah, which uh, you know I think is a bit of a choice. Per personally, I would not be wearing that jersey right now. Um, you know, I obviously you hold on to it and you see how it all plays out, and maybe this whole thing ends up not being as bad or charges a draw like. I don't know. Maybe there's some sort of rehab rehabilitation down the line where Lucci just finds his way back into some good graces. Like, I don't know. That doesn't really seem like it's going to be happening anytime soon, but you just don't really know how these things play out until they're actually done playing out. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's a tough one though, because if it does end up bad and you know, there's like a real price for Lucci to pay here, then it almost does kind of become a jersey that you might never really be able to to wear again. Um, and I, I don't I don't know what you do with that. You, do you try to get it changed to some other number? Like, is that even possible? I did. Yes, I, I know, know a guy. I was actually just okay. going to tell you I know a guy. Like, I'm not even kidding. Um, I know someone that will fix your jersey well, or turn it into I a jacket. Or I have I have. The simple solution for Jeff. Take some tape, put it over Luchich's name, and type uh, or write with a sketch, uh, a magic marker, Schaefer. Because I think Peter Schaefer was number 17, wasn't he? Or was he 72 or something? Who was number 17 before Luchich? Uh, it wouldn't have, have been Schaefer because that, uh, that was the same year they were on a team together. So it wouldn't have been Peter Schaefer. Who was 17 before Luchich? I was going to say, we, we haven't done jersey numbers in a while. I get a... But we'll, see, who do, who do we well, go for the Bruins have been posting them right along for like the centennial season, like on their Instagram. They keep uh, Zamner was Zam was uh, Rob, Rob Zamner was one recently. Nick Felino, Ryan Donato. Oh, oh it's yeah, just, it's that's a right. Nick Felino jersey, then there you yeah. go. Fliggy, except for he wasn't on that, he wasn't with the team that year. That's but, you true. Know, you're, that you're... People aren't gonna hopefully, people don't notice. Um, I would, I would say to Jeff's question, uh, I think Scott handled it pretty. Uh, said it pretty pretty well as, as it pertains to like you know a public matter like this it's like you know until this until you you really know the whole story and, and exactly what goes down until then maybe just while everybody has their right to wear anything that they purchase maybe just um it, it might not be the smartest well, jersey to wear this this isn't a question that actually one of the other writers that we work with matt vator asked me like few months ago just he was like he, for some reason he thought it was he goes Bridget is there anyone's jersey that if like you went on a first date with someone and they were wearing this jersey that you would be like nope <laughs> like like it would they would fail the first date immediately and I think you could put Milan Lucic in that um yeah. range now at this point but what about what about a what about a Mac Jones jersey 
No, I mean because he, that's one with he's um, just, you know, meh. But the, sec- he's the, not the, bad. the second part of, the, of Jeff's question was like, or, or if somebody just like their their play got worse and worse and worse, would you would you not wear the jersey then? And I feel like that that's pretty applicable to Mac Jones. There's probably a lot of Mac Jones jerseys that were purchased in 2021 that mm-hmm. might be finding their way to the attic. My uh, my. Yeah. M- my go-to on that one was uh, when the Patriots drafted him the first round. I, as a kid, I got a Lawrence Maroney jersey, mm-hmm. and uh, he he was basically a bust. And I I did not wear that jersey much until like years later, and then I wore it like ironically. It was just like like funny to wear a Lawrence Maroney jersey, <laughs> but um, yeah, that's that's why like you gotta you gotta get jerseys of established guys who have been around, which obviously Lucic was. I'm, you know, unfortunately, until very recently. Lucic was an established guy, yeah. and yeah, it just, like, went south. Like, um, so my other answers were Aaron Hernandez. Um, yeah, I said Kyrie Irving. I just, I, no, I, if someone showed up to a date, a first date wearing a Kyrie Irving jersey, I think that that would be a red flag. What, what if, um, what if I was wearing a BU DJ Irving jersey, Kyrie's father? <laughs> One, one of I don't great... even know Scott how to answer that because players in BU basketball history. Oh God! I, you know what? I would never. Yeah, do you know what's funny is like there, there were room, there were rumors like when Kyrie was in high school that like BU was looking at him. He was looking at BU because of his dad's connection. And it was like Kyrie Irving isn't going to BU, guys. Like he's getting recruited by Duke and every other top program in the country. No. So. Scott, so Bridget, what'd you say? You just not gonna date people with jerseys? Is that what you said? I'm just not. Gonna, yeah, actually, if you show up to a first say, date with me in a fucking jersey, you leave. Just just go back home, please. I was gonna say like unless unless you're going to a game, like that's that's yeah. a bold choice. Hey, not, yeah. nothing. And also also offer to pay for my dinner. No. Yeah, I mean that's <laughs> that, that's. That that's common. That's common etiquette. But I mean, yeah, I mean, not, nothing, nothing, you know, nothing says date me like wearing a jersey with some other guy's name on the back of it <laughs> on your first date. Uh, or 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 female's name. It could be a WNBA jersey or a PWHL jersey. Yeah. We didn't talk. Oh, we didn't have a fashion segment on those jerseys. Those are pretty bland, huh? They suck. The Boston ones. Yeah. Well, all of them. They're oh, all, they don't all, have names yet. They they're all template. Have... Yeah. Every every yeah, every jersey is the same. They're all like they're all like EA Sports created team. Like, yeah, just yeah. awful. Okay, yeah. I think they're waiting. I think that they're those are like the the placeholders for when they actually have a determined you know possibly team name besides just Boston. Well, you know, they start they start playing next month. What J- January second, right right down the street from me at the Sangha Center. Oh my God! What happened to my camera? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Bridget. <laughs> what uh, the fuck is going on? Hey, hey, hey! Don't whatever you do, whatever you do, don't call it, don't call her Two Face, okay? Oh um, I wait, don't even know what to do with this. Scott, did you say they're playing at Songus? Yeah, that's their home rank. Yeah, no, I thought I thought they were doing like neutral sites for all these games. No, like no, each um, each city there has like their own home rank, but mm. yeah, the. The bot, the quote unquote Boston team is mm. playing in Lowell. Which, hmm. uh, That's pretty cool. Yeah. I didn't know that actually. Good stuff. I mean, it's it's cool for Lowell, but like pe- fans in Boston, that's, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a trek. I, I 
I yeah. make that drive often. It's yeah, but we, but but it's. I mean, like like every team in Boston, it's regional. I mean, everybody from all over this region likes to travel for for these these games. So I drive a lot farther. I mean, Lowell's probably yeah. Um, okay, Songus is a great rank too. It is. Where, where would you have recommended Scott? I mean, anything's better than Warrior. I mean, uh, the Pride playing at Warrior, it's like it's a great practice facility. That should be it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's too small, and I I do think like other places are just probably would have been tough schedule wise. Like, like I could say again, but it's like, okay, is again, going to be able to, you know, fit their games in regularly when you have, um, you know, BU already playing there and concerts and events and all whatnot. Maybe Harvard. They have like, I mean, Northeastern Matthews is probably a little too old. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I like Matthews. The, the reason why I think it's at Songus is ben, because Bentley's rink's really nice. I don't know yeah. how much other thing stuff they use it for. I mean, that's in Waltham, so you're not right in Boston, but that's pretty true. close. That's true. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, I I just know that um, weirdly, UMass Lowell does not have a women's hockey team. Neither does UMass Amherst. Um, so like they have a little bit more ice time available at Songus because they don't have mm. a men and a women's team there. So. Yeah, I mean, Songus back in the day had you had the Riverhawks, you had uh, the Lock Monsters or the River Rats, whichever one you you watch. But for me, it was the Lock Monsters, and then you had, I mean, there was a ton of youth games back then as well, and maybe I think I think uh, Lowell Tech may have played there too, and some other schools. So now, yeah, they they didn't. And when the Lock Monsters first came, the the Riverhawks stayed at, you know, then it was Tully Forum, now Chelmsford Forum. Like they stayed there for a little bit before they finally moved mm. over. Anyways, real ones remember Tully Forum, not Chelmsford Forum. Scott, good reference. Well, especially if, if you're from Bill Ricca, you don't call it Chelmsford Forum because no. it's, it's technically Tully. in Bill Ricca. So, right, right, exactly. Um, all right, moving along here. Um, Sam emailed us a question. Uh, still stunned that Beecher was benched for the Toronto game considering the goals he scored and how high his, um, percentages for winning face-offs i can't believe i have to ask this question but do you see any scenario where they send him back to providence if monty decides to go with oscar steen no i don't because i think i think the reasons behind beecher getting sad are very fixable and we're more short-term hey take a day to reset type thing and not like long-term issues compounding on top of each other where he's like a net negative to the team. Like we have not seen that he's even during that stretch where Montgomery saw his game slipping a little bit, like as uh, you know, as they reference in the question, like he had three goals in the six games before that he's been winning faceoffs, killing penalties. Um, you know, I mentioned on the last podcast, like he, he was not a minus at five on five in any game they played in November. So unless things like really went south where he was like out there hurting the team and was on, on the ice for a bunch of goals against, I, I don't think him getting sent down is, um, is in the cards. Like you would see, you'd see more of a rotation maybe on the fourth line before you'd even get to that. No, I think he's, he's safe. I would say um, because of, the center pipeline that we've been talking about. I know we, and we, you referenced this a little bit earlier as well. Scott geeky can play center and he does occasionally take shifts at center over the last few games. I 
noticed that, especially like after a power play or after a penalty kill. Um, so he can do that, but I don't see Dean beating Beecher out for a job. First of all, because of the position, like who, what position they need. And also just because I think Beecher straight from camp all the way through now has shown he, you know, he can play that role and he's a better option than Steen, who's not a center. Um, but so I don't think that the competition, like, I, I know this was actually me that said this last episode, um, like, you know, showing him that Montgomery showing Beecher, like, Hey, we have other guys that we can plug in more of a, like a scare tactic, but I don't think there's really anything to it that makes me think that he would actually do it besides just to be like, there's still competition you have to worry about, but like, I don't think, I think we're so far away from seeing him like Beecher put up a performance or a few, like a month of performances where he deserves to get passed in the depth chart by anyone. I don't even, you know, it would probably need to be a center as well. Um, So yeah, I, I think we all said this as well at the time, we're kind of surprised by the, by the benching in the first place. So um, yeah, not, I'm not super concerned. He's going to lose his job. I, I don't know about you guys, but I just, I don't think he's at that point. I, and I also think that, um, you know, he, like you said, Scott, those fixable, like fixable things. It's not like, Oh, you know, he can develop more. He's once again, like Laura, he's in his, he's like 22 or 23. He's not like 18. So um, yeah, he, it's not like he's still making those kinds of mistakes. Yep, I agree with the two of you, so I'll just move on to the next question. Now, Sam had a, a second question regarding Patra, but um, we're going to lump all the Patra questions into one because there were multiple of them. So um, Liz reached out to us and asked, the Bruins have an optional skate this morning, which is Tuesday. Um, why is that when everyone on the team has talked about how they haven't had enough practice days to work on things? So I asked, I actually asked Jim Montgomery this at said optional practice. Um, And his answer was basically that they just got through a stretch where they had nine games and 16 days. He said, there are some guys battling bumps and bruises. um, And they just thought like that they're going to probably have a pretty hard practice Wednesday. They still had everyone in the building for a video session. So they still went over things that, you know, presumably, Presumably now they're going to go out on the ice and practice on Wednesday. Um, but I think they just thought it'd be beneficial for guys to kind of do as little or as much as they wanted on Tuesday, um, not skate them too hard. And guys who wanted to rest or take it easy could. Um, so that's sort of what it seems like is it's informed more by they feel like the benefit of maybe a little bit more downtime right now was uh more advantageous than back-to-back like hard practice days bridget nothing to add there obviously scott kind of heard it from coach's mouth so yeah i was gonna say there's nothing to add scott was also there so (laughs) not an optional skate for for scott no it wasn't we made i mean technically it could have been i i could have no one was forcing me to go but 
Yeah, but that's but, the heart of a champion. Now you just show up even when you don't have to. I, I actually went. I actually went only to ask that question. That is the only reason no, <laughs> that that wasn't. But uh, it was a benefit. Yes, he took the bell bag questions and brought them right to coach and was like, "Hey, can you can you answer some of these for?" Our yeah, I'm just I'm just like, all right, Monty, I've got a mail bag questions here. Uh, got about ten questions about Wait, where pots are to play. Are so you coach, the so coach, um, quick question for you. Would you still wear a Lucic jersey? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so, which one would Jim Montgomery uh, rather wear a Lucic jersey or be you, Gary? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. They're both a, red flags. Question. They're both red flags. I'll let Monty answer that one. Um, all right. So, Sam and Liz both had questions about Patra. So, I'll quickly just mention their points, but. And then go into Kim's main question about Patra. Sam was talking about basically um, just Patra moving around lines too much and and not having an opportunity to kind of get chemistry um, and just let the kid do his thing and, and find some some players that he works with. And and then um, oh, and also also talked about uh, how he draws a lot of penalties and there was a lack of maybe maybe a lack of standing up for him at times this year, like in the Panthers game, he got cross-checked and Reeves hitting him from behind and how Marshand and Heinen respectively, I think may have tried to do something, but not protecting him as much as maybe the team, his teammates should. Um, and then, yeah. So then, so Kim, Kim emailed us this question and she said, after the San Jose game, I was confident that Monty had finally found the line combinations he had been looking for. Moving Marshan to the Patra Heinen line, keeping JVR, Coyle, Freddie together, and having Jake play with Pasta, Zaka paid off. All the lines just clicked, and Monty in particular raved about the chemistry and energy of the Marshan Patra Heinen line. It sounded like Monty was planning to keep all three lines together, but flipped Coyle and Patra just for the Toronto game due to matchups. Um, fast forward to Sunday and everything Monty said went out the window and he kept the Toronto lines for the CBJ game. I'm guessing because Marshan finally scored that Monty won't change the lines back despite the JVR Potch or Freddie line, not really clicking. However, the JVR coil Freddie line has been consistently good throughout the season. And there's no argument that coil Freddie thrive together on the same line. Patra and Heinen have already developed great chemistry, and with Marshan driving the line, you could tell they were going to be a force to be reckoned with. So of that, here's her question. Do you all feel that the top three lines from the San Jose game should have stayed together? Do you think we will see them together again? I liked those lines. I, I agree with her. I think that, I mean, it was against San Jose. Um, which we, we kind of like preface, but I think that those were lines that I, I was hoping to see for a longer period of time because um, putting DeBrusque with Pasta and Zaka made sense. He, and they did have flashes. Um, I thought they had a good game coach for whatever reason, seemed to not be as enthusiastic about that line. Um, but Patra with Marshand and Heinen, who we've talked about, um, you know, out outperforming what we thought he could do and being a very complimentary player um, set up one of Marshawn's most recent goals. So like he's still, I see that Patra with Marshawn and Heinen should still be similar than with Coyle. Like I don't necessarily understand the 
reasoning to take Coyle away from JVR and Freddie. I thought that obviously Coyle played well with Marshawn and uh, Hyman, but it feels like too much of a detraction from what he could be adding to a different line. And also it was weird with JVR and Patra and like something about that just wasn't working for me. I don't know about you guys. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it was matchup based against Toronto. And I think if it sticks and obviously did stick Sunday night against Columbus, which I wonder if part of that is, Hey, you're playing a back to back and we liked, we liked the way things looked against Toronto. So without any sort of practice in between, might as well just stick with it for another game. I will be interested to see Wednesday at practice, what the lines look like. Um, but I also think part of this is, is the role in the kinds of shifts uh is going to get, because if you're with Marshand, then you're seeing opponents, you know, one of their top checking lines, one of their top two defense pairs, um, you're getting, you know, uh, probably fairly significant minutes. Um, we've seen Montgomery clearly doesn't totally trust Patra in like third period of games. Yeah. Protecting leads. So I think by putting coil with Martian and Heinen in Montgomery's mind, I think that creates more of a true second line that he's going to be able to roll out in any situation, any matchup, third period, protecting leads, anything. And he doesn't have to worry about at least changing that up as the game goes on. Um, you put Padre with Ben Reemsteig and Frederick, and you can kind of protect them, shelter them a little more when it comes to, to matchups. So, you know, I do agree that that line hasn't to- really clicked yet, but I also don't think like it's been a disaster. Like I, I think there's something there that you can try to build on. Um, so I'm going to be interested to see if, Montgomery kind of sticks with that lineup and gives those lines a chance to build, or does he go back to Marsha and Patra Heinen, which did certainly flash in that one game they had together. Although, as you mentioned, it was against San Jose, the worst team in the NHL. Yeah. Which is why we would like to see it, how it could work against a more middle of the road team. Like not, not necessarily the, the last team, but um yeah, and, and you know what? We keep coming back to this idea of like maybe Potter not being ready to handle all situations, but it kind of drives me crazy that like why why are we sheltering him and babying him this much? Like I feel like he can grow and he can learn from playing in those situations. Um, it, it, to put him next to Freddie, I mean, in terms of like having someone to stick up for him, like Frederick can do that. We've seen him uh, fight. We know he's probably one of the only guys that is willing to do that on this team this year. So I uh, like it. That's an option for you, I guess, but it just, it felt like Marshawn and Patra finally were kind of getting that chemistry. And then, it, you know, we, we don't, we don't get a chance to see it over the, the next two games. So it's weird. It's just, sometimes there's, it feels like, and it felt like this in the playoffs last year at times, like just over tinkering at times. Um, I don't know. I mean, to answer the the last part of the question, I definitely think we'll see those lines again. Um, I think 
I don't I don't take too much stock in the lines too too much at different points in the regular season just because there's there's always the regular season is so long. Sometimes the lineup the lines change because you're trying to get one specific guy going and there's a there's a butterfly effect everywhere else in the lineup. Sometimes it is matchup dependent. Um so but with that said, I think another reason would be to change the lines is yes, to see what you have um with certain combinations. I think there's a fine line between changing the lines um throughout the regular season for different reasons to keep things fresh and then changing the lines too much. Like you do want to you do want to give certain lines like five game sample sizes, I think. And if you do that, you're still going to have plenty of combinations to to tinker with all year. Um but it just seems like Montgomery does it too quick. Too quick, too too frequent. Like you can let a line go go together for three, four games, and you still have another, you know, 78, 70 to I'm talking if this was October, you know what I mean? So it's like I think he needs to let things breathe just a little bit more. Um, it's unrealistic to expect him to pick four lines and roll with them all year, but it is he's got he's gotta find a bit of a better balance, I think. And again, with somebody like Potra, it's like I think the Bruins kind of hope that he can be a top six fixture for them at some point um later in the season and the only way he's going to get there is by logging top six minutes with top six players around him playing against other top six players on the opposition so um yeah i want to make just like a comparison i know it's not obviously pros in college are very different but when you see but the my the point i'm the reason i'm making it is because of how young potra is you very rarely see this kind of line tinkering that a coach doing it in college at the college level. Like they're trying to establish chemistry. They're trying to establish, establish consistency. Um, like I, you very rarely see this, the kind of changing and playing um, somebody so young with so many different line mates and mixing it up every single night. Like it's intentional in college to, keep guys together and let them grow and build chemistry and, and, you know, fight through some of the learning curves, but um, because it's the NHL, you know, most guys can handle it, but you we're talking specifically about someone who is very young and um, you know, continuing to grow and, and sometimes just a little bit of stability could go a long way. So, you know, sometimes we're, we're saying, okay, maybe he's not contributing as much as we thought he would. Well, maybe it's because he hasn't been able to settle in and feel comfortable. Like this is his, like, th- these are my guys that I work with. Th- th- these are the looks I, I like, this is where I know Marshawn's going to be. And then all of a sudden, Oh, Marshawn's not on my line anymore. Just maybe a little bit more consistency for a kid that's 19 years old would, would help. I mean, certainly it could. I personally, like, I, I don't really think it's doing any harm moving him around and getting him looks with different wingers. It's, it's also new to him It that like, I don't know, like he, he's not expecting to, or he shouldn't be expecting to get like 10 games straight playing with Brad Marshan. Like I, I think Matt Podge is probably pretty happy with just being here and playing period. And so well, yeah, <laughs> m- moving, moving things around and, you know, figuring out what works and what you want to do in certain games. Like I, I'm fine with it. I gen- sometimes yes, Montgomery can change things too much. Um, but to me, like I'm just okay with doing it as the year goes on. Like, I, I think it's fine. I think 
I think you kind of want everyone to be able to play with everyone anyways, because we, we saw this last, like last year, especially the second half of the season, they did have settled lines for a long stretch. And then you get to the end of the season in the playoffs and there's injuries and you have to move things around. And all of a sudden guys are playing with guys. They maybe haven't been on a line with in a couple months. So um, I don't, I don't think there's really a whole lot of harm in it. Uh, last thing to note here, because I think we uh, briefly touched on it, but it, I think it was Sam who uh, said, um, speaking of Padre, he has to have drawn the most penalties on the team. Is that true? Good instincts, Sam, uh, because Matt Potter is tied for the team lead in penalties drawn with Brad Marchand. They have each each drawn 13 penalties. Uh, David Postonok's third with 10 drawn. Um, Charlie McAvoy has drawn, drawn nine, which is usually defensemen don't draw a lot of penalties. So that's um, that's pretty impressive for McAvoy to be up there too. All right. So we have three questions remaining. I think they're we can answer them relatively quick. So let's try to rattle through them. One is actually not a specific question. It's more something Scott's been seeing in his mentions on Twitter. Um, and the sentiment is, is this still a transition year for the Bruins? Um, is anything, is anything they win just a bonus or should they be all in trying to win the cup now? Yeah. So this was me kind of summarizing. Um, I think this was, this came off of the, Patra discussion too because one of the comments that sort of sparked this off is that like uh they should just you know not not be afraid to like play Patra more play him up in the lineup because this year should be more about development anyways and while yes developing players is important um and you know they are going to do that you also currently have the second best record in the NHL. So guess what? This season's about winning. Like, sorry, but you don't get into December with the second best record in the NHL and have it be a transition year. Like you're, you're trying to win now. So I know the Bruins said all along, going back to the off season, that that was their expectation. Um, and I know, you know, all of us collectively probably had mixed opinions on, you know, whether they really believe that or whether that was realistic, but here they are, you know, uh, two months into into the season with the second best record in the league. Like it's not winning, winning a playoff round of two isn't to me, like that's not just gravy at this point. Like that's, that's what you're trying to do. And you, you can't take any contending season for granted so when it's here, you got to go for it. Yeah. I mean, like if we're being completely honest roster aside, because it's, you know, especially at center, it's very different. They're in the same position that they were last season. Like they're standings wise, like same, same exact position to set themselves up for a deep playoff run. I mean, even if they were going to be a wild card team, like set up for a wild card team, like, no, you're still, you're still taking a run. Like like you mentioned, you can't take any of those years for granted and you're set up pretty well. You still have a great defense and two great goaltenders. You're still a contender. This is not a transition year just because you have turnover and, and different personnel. Uh, doesn't mean like, Oh, you know, we, we have to figure out how to work with these people. Like, no, like you actually find yourself in a position where the same, you can have the same mindset as last year, which is, you know, 
we got one one more shot at this. Um, Cause then you, you never know about after that. I think it's been such a pleasant surprise for the organization and for fans that there wasn't a drop off from last season, despite the, the fact that you lose Patrice Bergeron and David Krejci and, you know, you're dealing with cap issues. The fact that they are where they are right now is pretty, I think you guys would agree above where we thought they would be at this point in the season. Um, just because of the, the factors, those factors of personnel changes um, and not necessarily knowing how some of the free agent signings were going to be. And a lot of them have worked out great. Uh, the, the Lucci one, not so much, um, but uh, for an unforeseeable reason. And yeah, it's, it's, you're all in again. Like we're, we're talking about a team that's going to be buyers at the trade deadline again. Um, hopefully they can find a way to have the cap space for that, which by the way, Scott, this, this is probably something you don't have like off the top of your head, but how much cap space and we can maybe look this up. How much cap space did they have last year at the trade deadline? Cause they made a lot of moves last year and I, well, I just don't... they had a lot because Taylor Hall and Nick Felina were on long-term mm-hmm. IR. That's right. And the timing of that was also like, couldn't have worked out more in the Bruins favor in terms of when those guys were set to come back and, and whatnot. But yeah, like they, they were able to make so many moves last year because of that. Um, anyway. Yeah. They yeah had I mean, a lot of space compared to, I, we don't think they're going to have that kind of space this year. So. I mean, at the end of the day, the Bruins are where they are in the standings because they're it's, it's indicative of their record against all of their peers and their counterparts. And you can sit there and say that going into the season, you had questions about their personnel on paper, and maybe you still do, but you know what? There are teams on paper that may not have had the certain questions that the Bruins had, but for some reason, they're they're not they're not in a position where um, anything's a guarantee for them. I mean, the New Jersey Devils come to mind. Like people had them as you know favorites in the East going into this year, and, and they've they've struggled pretty mightily. Um, you, you never know what's going to happen. If we've learned anything from last year in the postseason is that when, when, when you think that the team is bound for success and set up perfectly, you can be bounced in the first round. And the Florida Panthers taught everybody that it doesn't matter. You just have to get in. So it doesn't, if you think that the Bruins don't have, despite their place in the standings, which is, again, earned by playing against everybody around them, which is the entire league that they're in, um, if you don't think that on paper they are a true Stanley Cup contender, what I would say to you is it doesn't matter what you think because we were all proven wrong last year. They had that team last year, and they, and they had the earliest spring of anybody that made the playoffs. And Florida, I would, I still feel this way. Outside of a couple of players, I didn't even think that their their roster was was even much to scoff at. I mean, you you had a their fourth line was a bunch of people nobody heard of. Uh, their decor besides Montour and Ekblad, it, 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 they had a few players. They taught everybody a lesson. So uh, as long as the team is there, like what you guys said, don't take it for granted. Um, anything can happen, whether you think the roster lacks something on paper or not. You just got to see how it plays out. Yeah, and the last thing I would say is like, all that said, like, yes, it, it's true that they almost certainly can't go all in to the extent that they did last year. As Bridget mentioned, there's cap issues. Unless they have another LTIR situation, they're they're not going to be able to add without subtracting something off the current roster. Also, like they traded away two first round picks at the deadline last year, 
they go into this deadline, you know, they don't have a pick in the first, second, or third round in this coming draft. They don't have their second round pick next year. Like, just from a pure what you can do, like, yeah, you you can't do as much as you did last year, but that doesn't mean you can't add. Like, you know, that there's there's still ways to get it done if, um, you know, if if you work hard enough. So, and that could be a blessing in disguise because sometimes when you do add, you you know, things just don't work out the way you want them to for one reason or another. Too much, too many chefs in the kitchen. You lack of chemistry. You don't know. It doesn't. So be careful what you wish for. I guess is the point. Um, all right, two final questions here. We have George on YouTube kind of um, piggybacking off that last one, but did anyone see three rookies and a bunch of bargain bin veterans being instrumental in taking this team to the position they are currently in, second overall in the league? No, I don't. Obviously, you know, I don't think anyone expected them to be this high up in the standings. We all picked them to make the playoffs. I think – did did we all have them second in the division or – I think so. I don't, I don't think any of us picked them first. Yeah. Um, um, so, yeah, I mean, we all thought they would be good and that they'd be a playoff team, but yeah, certainly they've won at a higher rate than I think anyone anticipated and no one expected Matt Potra to be part of the equation. I think, you know, we all felt like Johnny Beecher had a chance to push for a roster spot, um, you know, after a, a full year down in Providence, but yeah, Potch has obviously been surprising, um, you know, the contributions of those. Look, having two of your four regular centers be rookies, like, that's that's no small task. That's the kind of thing you normally see on a rebuilding team, not one that's second in the NHL in the standings. And, you know, um, Jim Montgomery's talked about that at, at different times this year, about, like, how, the challenges that that presents because th- – for a couple, like just being a rookie in the NHL by itself carries a ton of learning curves. Being a center carries even more of them. And being a center for the Bruins, where they have so many demands of their centers of what they're expected to do, like it's not easy. And and that's why we've, you know, there's been some growing pains. And it's why I'm not shocked when Montgomery, you know, sits Potter in the third period of a game or or gives Beecher a night off. It's like they're throwing a lot at these kids. And for the most part, they've handled it really well, but like they're not finished products yet. And they're, they're still going to make mistakes. And, you know, the, the Bruins have to find the right balance between letting them work through it while also still trying to win games because they are a contender and every point matters. Yeah, I, I don't know how much to add either here because I feel like we kind of we kind of went over it, not specifically talking about the rookies necessarily, but we'll, that the team has done a lot better than expected. And that includes the individual performances of a Matt Patra, who we thought was going to go back to Guelph, you know, before he had such a great preseason. And then um, like we, we know what happened from there. Like he's, he's established himself, I think, all th- both centers, so Beecher, Beecher and Patra won those jobs from other people. Um, so they've shown uh, that they could steal those jobs and hold on to them. Laura came up briefly, um, went back down, but, you know, he looked to be, like, not 100% NHL ready, but right there. I mean, if you needed him, he could be. Um, but 
it was it was good to see that you have options that are younger that are coming up um that you you like and that seem like they're going to be fits for the future um because you can kind of start projecting forward like what Patra might be in his career and and if the Bruins I know we talked about potentially trading Lorai for Hannafin but like say they hold on to Lorai like as a prospect into a player that they keep around for a long time you can kind of start seeing what they have and it's just a kind of a good combination of cheap contracts for one reason or the other, because like we mentioned JVR coming in um, as a complete bargain uh, for a really good player who has a lot left. And then um, same thing on the, uh, the young end with Patra being 19 and, and exceeding expectations. Yeah. I mean, we, we knew based on goaltending defense and just team structure overall and, and some high end talent up front that they were, they were be a competitive team and, and and a playoff team as we all predicted but there were a lot of questions that if the answer was yes this team could could have something if the answer was no it might be tough to maybe they'd be a bubble a bubble team or something and those questions were can will charlie coyle and pavel zaka will they sink or swim in these elevated roles and so far they're swimming um can jvr be anything of what he used to be in the in the nhl production wise or is he going to be the 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 player he was in Philly last year, where he, he didn't have much production at all, and and he's been revived. So that answers a yes. And then nobody saw, as you guys mentioned, Potra coming into the picture. Um, and then Beecher, it was a, it was a, yeah, we'll see. And he's been a pleasant surprise. So, um, yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been fun to watch so far. Um, one, the final question uh, is regarding defense. And Scott, you've mentioned in the past that the Bruins are obviously excellent by all defensive metrics, but where they are weak is in transition. They give up a lot of transition uh, opportunities. So this final question is related to that. What is causing all the odd man rushes they give up? Is it simply bad decision-making by the D-man or uh, forwards not dropping back or both? Yeah, so I, th- I think the – I guess what I'd say is the biggest problem is just in general puck management. It's been – there's been too many turnovers – right inside of the offensive zone, too many one and dones in the offensive zone. And that allows teams to kind of quickly reload and come right back at you. Um, We know the Bruins play, you know, a pretty aggressive system in transition with defensemen jumping up. They use that weak side D a lot. Um, But the give and take there is like, if you don't manage the puck well and you turn it over on your rush, well, now you already have a defenseman caught up ice. So, you know, whether it's maybe a center hasn't hung back enough or whatever, like you're not fully, you're not in the right position to defend that rush coming back at you. So there's, you know, probably other little things we could talk about like technique wise that I'm sure the Bruins are looking at on video, but the biggest overarching thing that it comes back to is, puck management like it's turning it over on a on a zone entry it's you know a a defenseman pinching down the wall and then the forward makes a bad pass like just things like that just not not taking care of the puck is i think um you know so it's not really necessarily on the forwards or defense one more than the other it's just team-wide not taking care of the puck enough yeah like specifically i usually this is where the the rush starts from is like 
your ozone blue line. If you make a stupid play at your ozone blue line, either it like a shot that gets blocked immediately, a pass that doesn't connect, or like you said, you get caught in too deep. Like that, that all of a sudden you're turning around and trying to catch up to the guys that um, took the puck away and are heading towards your net. So yeah, it, it, a lot of it happens in that area of the ice. Yeah. And I think, I think when you're playing, um, when you're playing good team defense transitionally, it's your, your defense uh, and your forwards coming back there, you know, there's cohesion there. It's kind of like a, like a slinky or an accordion when it kind of like comes, it comes together. It's like, you want the, you want the D to be able to step up and have good gap control um, knowing that they have back pressure from their forwards. Uh, as far as why the oddman rushes are taking place in the first place, it would be to Scott's point, lack of puck management. And then from there, yeah, it's just a matter of it's just a matter of decision making and, and just playing as a five man unit. Um, all right, Bridget and Scott, any final um, res- response to this question or other questions or any other takes? Yeah, so so one last note on this because it just worked out that um, Megan Shaka, who does some work with like staff leads and hockey analytics, uh, tweeted out today. You know, as we're recording, um, NHL oddman rushes against which. We had touched so probably about a month ago. Nesson had this as a stat, and the Bruins had given up the second most odd man rushes per game. At that point, these are not publicly available stats, but she tweeted all, all 32 teams where they rank, and the Bruins are 26th. So, again, still not good, but they're not the second worst anymore. And if you look at like teams around them, like there, there are other good teams there that have been struggling with this. Like the Bruins are right ahead of the Rangers. Uh, Vegas is just ahead of the Bruins. Toronto, Tampa are right there. Dallas is not too far ahead of them. Like those are good teams. And I guess, you know, the takeaway there would be like, to me, those are all teams that want to be aggressive and get their defensemen involved. So you can kind of see like, especially early in the year, teams can struggle with that. Um, the teams at the top, the teams that are giving up the fewest, also very good teams and ones that, you know, maybe are, um, I don't know, a little more structured, I guess. But, like, the Kings are the best in the NHL by a lot. Um, Carolina, New Jersey, Vancouver, Florida is the top five. So it's kind of a mix of, like, some of the top teams are up there really good at it, and others are kind of where the Bruins are, where it's been a little bit of a struggle. All right. Well, there you have it. So thank, thank God, thank the heavens for, for Scott and his ability to pull those stats out of his ass like that, right. When we're, <laughs> when we're recording so we can, we can tie it all together and put a bow on top. So that, that would conclude uh, all the questions for this week. Uh, thank you for sending them all in. There was plenty to discuss and go over all over the map. Um, Bridget Scott, any, any topics that you were surprised weren't, weren't asked about? Um, the no, I think, yeah, actually, yeah, that's a good one. That one, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he'll he'll continue to be a talking point all year. I, I would imagine if 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 this year is the same as the last six he's been in Boston, or maybe the last three he's been in Boston, probably. Not surprisingly, we don't get a lot about the goalies just because they kind of just do what they do their thing and do it the right way. And it's just, you know, not something that even comes up a lot. So um, not surprised. I think every mailbag episode we had this year so far, it's like 
Patra heavy are the questions we're yeah. getting. I'm surprised um, there was um there was a question about Lindholm, but there was it wasn't the the Lindholm I'm thinking of. Uh, I'm surprised, maybe a little surprised. Um, just in general, I feel like Lindholm hasn't been um too harped on by 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 fans and spectators alike. I think like I think, I mean we're he still hasn't been he hasn't picked up his production at all. I still think he's defensively he's obviously good, um, but he's supposed to be a great player in this league and not just a good one. And I just don't see him being a difference maker um, nearly enough uh, to, to, to his standards. Um, so I guess it's a long year. I'd rather him play great in the spring as over, over right now in December. Um, but I don't know. I'm surprised about him still. Yeah. It, it, it almost feels like there's been, I don't know, just sort of like an accept, like as long as it's, as long as, he's not noticeable good or bad. Like people are just sort of letting it, letting it ride for now. But, you know, it's like, he's at least put up a few points. It's not, you know, like early on in the years, what, like 10 games without a pointer or something like that. Um, and I feel like, you know, we haven't seen early in the year. It felt like there were maybe a few more turnovers that ended up in the back of the net or ended up in scoring chances. And there haven't been as many of those. So it's like, he sort of his game's just sort of been quiet, and I think you know well, people don't really talk about quiet games. The first the first year and a half of having him, um, you had two number one defensemen on this team, in my opinion, uh, and and if one wasn't one on one night, the other one was, and he hasn't been that this year. And the whole question we had earlier on in the episode about Noah Hannafin, the the prospect of bringing Noah Hannafin to Boston, I feel like I, I wouldn't have. I'm a lot more open to it right now because with the way Lindholm is playing, I, I I do want that um that stacked top four. Whereas if Lindholm was still playing as like a number one D man, like I don't know if I would even entertain the Hannafin thing as much. Um and maybe that's an unfair statement because it's only two months into the season. But I just think if, if Lindholm's gonna be that conservative stay at home guy with Carlo, then I do think they need more offense in the back end. I think the numbers would show that too. Of course yeah. Brian Brian brought it back around to Lindholm. <laughs> someone's got to do it not entirely surprised uh, maybe he's a sleeping giant maybe you know maybe some point in this season it's like oh okay there he is you know the guy that we saw back when he played his best when McAvoy was out um probably but even when he first got brought in for the Bruins like I mean he still has that ability maybe it wakes up at some point I think that's why Brian brings him up a lot is because it's like we know it's there it's not like it's because the the bar is so high that you know he's he's above other people's bars, but we know that his is, is you know he's a he's a good uh, contributor offensively when he's at the top of his game. So I know that's yeah, why Brian brings it up. I do also want like we talked about forward lines. I do also wonder if at some point do we see more Lindholm McAvoy again? Like they they had one game together, and and you know they get shifts together from time to time, obviously, but you know, maybe a more concerted effort, like could really benefit both of them, get both of them going. Um, Cause I do think like when Lindholm's with Carlo, it's just by, by its nature, a more defensive pairing and maybe not quite as involved offensively because on the one hand, it's like, you can say that, Oh, Carlo's a, you know, a safety blanket. He should allow Lindholm to get more involved, but on the other, like offense is a five man game and you know, 
being on a pairing with Charlie McAvoy, you're going to be more involved offensively than being with Brandon Carlo. Well, and especially if like if the whole counterpoint to putting Lindholm with Carlo is because well McAvoy and Gris- and uh, Grizzly are so good together. Well, that's great, but but you know with one point in 14 games, whatever it's been, I mean Grizzly needs to he needs to step up a little bit too if he wants to meet, keep that argument alive. Um, at least to the point where you're keeping Lindholm away from McAvoy. So uh, anyway, uh, fun episode, lots to talk about. Um, and Bridget and Scott, any any final thoughts before we go? Uh, I wanted to echo something I saw uh, DJ Bean brought up on the latest What Chaos show, but we, we didn't talk about it. But after the after Marshan's hat trick, they played um, Frankie Valley's Can't Take My Eyes Off of You. And like the whole crowd was singing along. And that was awesome. And they should play that more. Like I am absolutely on board with that take because it's, it's way better than like a living on a prayer sing along, which has been overdone for decades. Um, That was, that was a cool moment. I love it. So Bridget, I'm gonna have to have you uh, film Scott next time that that song comes out at the garden (laughs) and send it over. Okay. Maybe we can tweet it out from the account. How about they film me every time I sing to Scott. That's what makes you beautiful by one direction. There you go. There you go. Um, all right. So Bruins are off until uh, Thursday. They play the Sabres and then they play the Coyotes, I think, maybe Saturday yep. or Sunday. So Saturday. the Coyotes who just keep beating Stanley Cup champions. Like, I think someone tweeted they've in like the last, or it's, it's a few days out of date now, but in like a 10 day span, they beat the last five Stanley Cup winners or something, or like a mm. two week span. Like, by the way, Coyotes in a playoff spot right now. So, yeah. Hmm. It's a one o'clock game at the Garden. Um, Scotty will be there uh, against the Coyotes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very good. All right. Well, thank you all for listening and submitting questions, and we will talk to you very soon.